Well, this morning we're going to be starting a new series from the book of Colossians entitled Christ Above All. It's a study that will build upon many of the foundational truths that, and doctrines that we just finished studying in our previous uh, examination of the gospel and how we ought to respond to it. We live in a time and in an American church today that desperately needs to hear the message of this book. This last year, Ligonier Ministries and the Cultural Resource Center both performed their own independent annual surveys on the current state of theology in American evangelical churches. They released their results just last month and their findings were more than just disappointing. They were downright terrifying. First, concerning the doctrine of Scripture, among self-identified evangelicals, 52% say they reject the idea of absolute truth, and 30% say that if such a thing did exist as absolute truth, you can never come to know or understand it with any certainty. Concerning the doctrine of salvation, 42% believe that God accepts the worship of all religions. 48% believe that salvation can be earned by one's good works. Concerning the doctrine of man and sin, 46% believe believe that people are basically good by nature. 43% of evangelicals say that some sins are small and do not deserve eternal damnation. And 40% believe that lying is acceptable in certain circumstances. Concerning the doctrine of Christ, 70% of evangelicals that responded to this survey believe that Jesus is the first and greatest being ever created by God. 30% agree outright with the statement that Jesus is not God, and and, uh, 43% believe that Jesus may have actually sinned. This is why I say that the message of Colossians needs to be set loose like a lightning bolt into the midst of an increasingly apostate American Christianity and an American evangelicalism. To those of you who say that you can never know divine truth with any certainty, Colossians says you can be filled with a knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. You can reach all the riches of having a full assurance of understanding and a knowledge of God. To those who say that salvation can be found outside of Christ... Colossians says all things, whether in heaven or on earth, are only reconciled through Jesus by the blood of his cross. To those who say that man is basically good and sin like lying is no big deal, Colossians says the wrath of God is coming upon all sexual immorality, all impurity, all passion, all evil desires, all covetousness, all anger, all wrath, all malice, all slander, all obscene talk, and all lying. The wrath of God is coming on these things. To those who say that Jesus was a sinful man and was not God, Colossians says that Christ is the image of the invisible God, 
from whom, through whom, and for whom all things were created. That he is the fullness of God dwelling bodily who was nailed to the cross to set us free from sin and to reconcile us to God. Jesus is our Lord. Jesus is our life. Jesus is our love. This is the message of Colossians. And we are complete in Him. And if we draw near to the Lord Jesus Christ and hold fast to Him, we will find in Him assurance, the peace, the knowledge, the joy, the wisdom, the purpose, the direction, the cleansing, and the strength that we need, not only for eternity, but for the here and now within our own lives, within our own families, within our own churches, with our own workplaces, and with our own world. This is an eternally relevant book we're about to study. We need Colossians because we need Christ. And I'm so excited to begin the study of this book whose fervent truths burn like a wildfire in the hearts of all those who believe. For this morning, we're just going to briefly look at the introduction and uh, theme of this book just to lay down a foundation of understanding for the weeks to come. And the first two verses of this book actually do an excellent job of that. So in verses 1 through 2, we're going to consider first the author of Colossians, there in verse 1, then the audience of Colossians at the beginning of verse 2, and finally establish for ourselves the aim of Colossians. What is its purpose? Why was it written? So the author, audience, and aim. With that in mind, let's read Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. This is the word of God, whose statutes we learn in the midst of our affliction. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful privilege we have this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it reveals to us the message of Christ. We thank you that we can truly know His worth. Father, I pray that as a result of this study that we are beginning this morning, You would raise in our hearts and our minds a greater awe of Your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we ask this for Your honor and for Your glory. We recognize, as the Puritans wrote, that a Christ highly prized, is a Christ highly obeyed. 
we recognize every problem that exists in our lives comes from the root cause that we do not prize Christ highly enough. So cause our eyes to see His glory. Cause our hearts to grasp His worth. May we rejoice in Christ and in Christ alone. Give us a simplicity in our devotion and our desires that is founded in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Teach us, Father, we pray. Magnify Yourself through us as we go into Your Word today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So right off the bat, here in the book of Colossians, we are introduced to the author in verse 1. It is written, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So first we're told that the author of this letter is Paul. That should get you excited because Paul was a man who possessed the most brilliant of minds, indomitable will, and zealous spirit of any man who has ever surrendered to Jesus Christ in faith. He was an individual used and uniquely qualified by God to present the saving gospel of Jesus Christ to every type of person. Just consider all the different types of avenues and cultures that Paul's life could touch. Paul was a Hebrew by ancestry. He was a Roman by citizenship. He was a Greek by upbringing. He was a Jew by education, trained under the renowned Gamaliel. And most importantly of all, he was a Christian by faith, by God's grace. As he described himself in Philippians 3, 5 through 7, Paul was circumcised on the eighth day. He was of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, but whatever gain I had, I counted as lost, Paul said, for the sake of Christ. Though Paul had an impressive resume, if you would have met him, you hardly would have ever known about it. Because the most important thing that Paul ever wanted you to know about is that he knew Jesus Christ by faith. And Paul, after having a dramatic vision of Jesus on the road to Damascus, was thrust into the ministry. And as a result, he was used by God to literally impact the entire known world at that time. Humbly bringing the gospel to all the corners of the map and writing 13 of the 27 New Testament books. So just knowing that this letter was written by Paul would be a reason enough for us to sit up and pay attention to what's about to be said. But listen, just in case he also says that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus. That is ultimately why we ought to listen to Paul. He is not just some guy getting up, sharing his personal opinion about life. Goodness sakes, we have enough of that. No, Paul is an apostle. He is a sent one. He is someone who has been personally chosen and commissioned by Jesus Christ, our risen Lord, to teach the truth. 
And so as an apostle, Paul is not communicating in this letter a message that is invented by some men. He's giving us a message that is directly given to him from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Paul discusses this in Galatians 1, 11 through 12 when he writes this. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul was an apostle. He saw Christ on the Damascus road. He was personally commissioned by Christ, and he was personally taught by Christ three years in the Arabian wilderness, as Galatians 1.18 indicates. So Paul, in this letter, as in all of his letters in the New Testament, speaks with divine authority. Paul speaks the words of Christ and the message of Christ to Christ's followers. He speaks with divine authority as an apostle. And he writes the message here in this letter that Jesus desired him to share with the Colossian church. Likewise, briefly note that Paul obtained his apostleship not through some church council or some ordination. It wasn't like a bunch of guys got together and said, I think this would be a great idea to have Paul do this. He was an apostle, Paul says, by the will of God. And therefore, not only did Paul have a message from God, he had authority from God also. And so we have Paul, the writer. And he's not alone, by the way. He has a companion while writing as a prisoner in Rome. It's Timothy, our brother, Paul says. Now, Paul mentions Timothy's presence here for three reasons. First, uh, Timothy is mentioned because some in the church in Colossae would have known him personally. During Paul's both second and third missionary journeys, Timothy accompanied Paul on his travels and was with him when they ministered to the regions of Asia Minor and Phrygia, very near where Colossae was located. And so, as those from Colossae traveled to hear the Apostle Paul, they would have gotten to know Timothy as well, who was his companion. So Paul mentions Timothy to them because it reminds them of someone else that they knew there. Uh, in Rome. Second, Paul mentions Timothy because Paul was preparing Timothy to take a prominent role in the early church. If you study Paul's letters to Timothy, even though he was a young man, Paul made it clear that he was entrusting to Timothy the very same gospel ministry God had entrusted to him. See, the apostles, Christ's ministry didn't end when he rose from the dead. He passed and ascended into heaven. He passed it on to his apostles. And that ministry did not end when the apostles ended it. They handed it off to other faithful men who would be able to teach others also. It's been handed down, down the line to, to pastors and to faithful believers. And so here we see that Timothy was that next step in declaring God's truth to the churches. God's gospel ministry was being entrusted to him. And Paul was encouraging Timothy to remain faithful and diligent to the task by mentioning his name to this letter. Timothy had a very special mentoring relationship with Paul. He's called Paul's true child in the faith in 1 Timothy, the one of whom Paul boasted, I have no man so like-minded. And so by drawing attention to Timothy, Paul was marking him out for future leadership in the church. Listen not only to me, listen to Timothy. And finally, Paul mentions Timothy to demonstrate the agreement that existed between the two of them in the doctrine of Christ. And it added a greater weight to what was about to be said. 
in this letter for the Colossian church to listen to and abide in it. So this is the author of Colossians, and it's his companion. Next, let's observe the audience of this letter. The audience of this letter. Paul writes that this letter is given to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Notice how Paul narrows down his audience. He's not writing to the whole town of Colossae. He's writing to the, to the local church, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ located at Colossae. So first Paul is writing to the saints. You say, well, who are the saints? Well, it's really easy. It's all those people that have their statues carved and have paintings drawn of them with little halos over their heads, right? No. No. The word saint is literally holy one. Or set apart one. It means anyone who has been set apart from this world to belong to God. That's any believer. Any person who has ever put their faith in Jesus Christ. Every single believer is a saint. A set apart one. There are not different, and we'll find this out later in Colossians. There are not different levels to believers. Those are the really holy ones and the common ones. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Romans 1.7 said it was written to those who are loved by God and called to be saints. You say, well, who are those who are called to be saints? Those, verse 6, who belong to Jesus Christ. So you're a saint. I'm Saint Zach. Have you ever thought about that? You are too. We've all been set apart. Colossians talks about this later in chapter 1, verse 13, where it says God has delivered us from the domain of darkness. And he has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. We are now set apart, holy, to the work and the salvation and the grace of God. Everyone who is trusted in Jesus Christ is set apart, is a saint. Not by their birth, not by their baptism, not by their works, but by the grace of God alone that is found through faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's who a saint is, let's be clear. It is through this divine miracle of salvation that a soul is set apart from the world to belong wholly to God. And that's why Paul says next that he's writing not only to the saints, but to what? The faithful brothers where? In Christ. Right? Paul is not writing to perfect people who got their lives straightened out first. He is writing to those sinners who had found grace, acceptance, righteousness, and faithfulness in Christ. Christ alone. I mean, look at what Paul says. He says that they were set apart in faithful brothers. How? By being in Christ. I hope none of you are sitting here this morning thinking I am a righteous person and I am holy because of how I've been living. It's not the foundation of you being holy and set apart. Your works. I hope none of you are sitting here this morning thinking, you know what? God looks at me by, as being faithful. Because of how I've been living my life. Are you kidding me? The basis and foundation of our holiness and of us being considered faithful in the sight of our God is never on the basis of our works. It's always on the basis of Christ. You never have an ounce of righteousness apart from Him or an ounce of faithfulness in the sight of God. And so here's the glorious truth. It doesn't matter how much you struggle with sin. It doesn't matter how unfaithful you are on a day-to-day basis. If you have truly embraced Jesus Christ by faith, He views you as holy and faithful in His sight. Faithful in Christ Jesus. 
Therefore, we should never let anything keep us apart from communion with our God because Christ is the foundation for our relationship with him. Being in Christ is the common foundation of our relationship with God and with each other. As 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30 says, Because of God you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. This is the foundation of every believer's holiness and of every believer's faithfulness. We are in Christ. Now it does make a difference in our life when you are in Christ. That begins leaking out of you, that righteousness that you stand on, that faithfulness that you stand on. But it is not yours. It's Christ's. So we are counted saints, and we are counted faithful in Christ alone. But Paul's audience had one other thing in common that we see here, and that is that they all lived at Colossae. See, we have to understand what was happening in that church in Colossae to really get the full impact of this letter. Colossae was located... In the southwest region of what we now call Turkey, located about 80 miles east of the port city of Ephesus and about 10 short miles east of Laodicea in the Lycus River Valley. There, the town of Colossae was located and was surrounded, really, by the seven towns and churches mentioned there in Revelation. Ephesus, Pergamum, Smyrna, Thyatira, Philadelphia, Sardis, and Laodicea. All of those churches, Colossae included, were likely founded during Paul's third missionary journey in which he held an evangelistic kind of church planting campaign headed up in the city of Ephesus for two years. There we're told in Acts 19 verse 10 that Paul's ministry continued for two years so that those who were, so that all the residents of Asia, which would have included Colossae, heard the word of the Lord both the Jews and the Greeks. So we know of at least some people from Colossae who were born again under Paul's ministry in Ephesus. One that you know of is named Philemon. Philemon to whom Paul's later letter was written to. In fact, the Colossian church originated in Philemon's house as we see in the first two verses of that letter. The second convert that we know was brought to the Lord under Paul's ministry in Ephesus was Epaphras who came all the way from Colossae to Ephesus to hear Paul preach, was so gripped by faith in Lord Jesus Christ that he became a fellow fellow laborer with Paul. He became an evangelist of the gospel throughout the Lycus River Valley, and he became even possibly an elder of the church in Colossae. Now what's interesting is geographically, Colossae stood where two rivers joined together. That's fitting poetically because likewise at Colossae, there were two heresies joining together to become a very unique threat to the fledgling church. In fact, it was because of this very threat that our faithful Epaphras travels, we learn from the book of Colossians, over 1,200 miles to see Paul in Rome, as Colossians 4 verse 12 states. Think about that. Paul is in Rome, and Epaphras, as Christ's labor among the Colossians, needed this twofold heresy to be corrected decisively by the Apostle Paul, and he travels 1,200 miles to get it corrected. There are two characteristics that I want to point out about this heresy that we'll find as we start going through this letter. And listen to see if this at all sounds familiar to what is going on in American Christianity and American evangelicalism today. First, 
the Colossian heresy taught the need for special knowledge and experience. The false teaching that threatened the church in Colossae was saying this, as we'll study when we go through this letter. Jesus is good, but Jesus is not enough. The gospel is not enough. You've got to have this special, elaborate knowledge. If you don't have this special, mystical knowledge, then you're really not living the Christian life. Christ isn't enough. You see this come out in Colossians 2.18 where Paul calls out those who are going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by their own sensuous minds. See, it's people, it's these type of people that were saying, oh, I've had a vision. I have touched the supernatural. I have a greater source of truth than you. Oh, all you have is Jesus in the Bible? Man, you really need to take the next step up. I've had a vision, and he prides himself in his superior knowledge. Evidently, someone, or more than someone, was in the Colossian church spreading the idea that Jesus wasn't enough. It's not enough for you to know Jesus. There are evil powers and spiritual barriers or something else that are holding you back spiritually. And the only way that you will experience a breakthrough is by having superior knowledge outside of knowing Christ outside of knowing the gospel, outside of knowing God's word. In their case, you need to know the names of the spirits of the angels who will fight for you. You need to bind Satan by means of this special knowledge, and then you'll have spiritual success. And once you have this spiritual revelation that I can give you, then you will succeed, and then you'll truly be able to live your life for the glory of God unimpeded. Welcome to Colossae. If you haven't taken a good look around, you are living in this town, believer, right now in America. Let me tell you about the two most successful evangelical books written over the last decade. The first, selling over 30 million copies, is titled Jesus Calling. It might be understood at a surface level as a very innocent devotional book. That's not how the author intended it. Sarah Young writes down messages she says that claims are from God himself. She says in her introduction, I knew that God communicated with me in the Bible, but I yearned for more. And so she wrote down the book during times of prayer in which she decided to listen to God with a pen in hand to hear what God was telling her. Since writing the book, she has stated, I have continued to receive personal messages from God. This is all about extra-biblical special knowledge, right? And it's not written like a fiction or like a novel. It's written like a devotional. This is something you need to live for the glory of God. To aid you in your Christian life. That's the first book. Second Best-selling evangelical book of the last decade is about a four-year-old special knowledge about heaven titled, Heaven is for Real. I'm glad I know now. How do I know? Well, despite that Jesus says no one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man, according to John 3.13, this guy's four-year-old son had a special knowledge. 
And despite that only four authors in the entire Bible ever had visions about heaven and were allowed to write about it, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Paul, and John, this guy's four-year-old son had a beautiful experience, and now we know that Jesus rides on a rainbow-colored unicorn. And the most fascinating characteristic about heaven, evidently, is not the glory of God. It's about the halo and the wings that believers receive as all the angels sing to us and not to God. This is one of the best-selling evangelical books of the last decade. It is patently unbiblical. Sorry if I'm stepping on toes, but hey, that's what a pastor's job is. It's all about special, extra-biblical knowledge. And it's not just books. Take a look around. There are entire denominational movements that insist that God gives people special knowledge, special words directly from the Lord. Christ, God's word, and the gospel are good and all that, but man, if you're not careful, this is what they'll say, that might be all you get. Because if Christ, God's word, and the gospel is all you have, you might be missing out on the abundant life God wants to give you. It's funny, I thought Christ was the one that gave abundant life. So you need to read this book. You need to have this expert. You need to have this experience because Christ is good, but if he's all you got, you don't have all you need. I could go on and on, but I think you see the point, and we will see more in weeks to come. That's why Paul writes down in Colossians 1.28 that through proclaiming Christ alone, everyone can be presented mature in Christ. That's why Colossians 2.3 says that you don't need additional knowledge because in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's why Colossians 2.9-10 state that in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him. If you have, if you have Christ, you've been filled by God. You are complete in him. Colossians 2.19 says it is by holding fast to the head, which is Christ, that the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Paul keeps on saying over and over and over again, because he knew we would have to hear it, that Jesus Christ is God and Jesus Christ is sufficient. He is all you need. Christ plus nothing equals salvation and the abundant life. If you have Jesus, Paul says here, you have all you need. Believe it. Believe it. There's a second aspect to the heresy that was making inroads in Colossae, and this was restrictive legalism, specifically of a Jewish strain. This Colossian heresy was trying to say that for salvation and for sanctification, Jesus Christ was good, but Jesus Christ was not enough. You also need to be circumcised. You see that in chapter 2, verse 11. You also need to observe Jewish feasts and holy days. That's in chapter 2, verse 16. You also need to follow extra-biblical rules and regulations and become very restrictive by what you eat and what you drink and what you wear. See, there's freedom in Christ. Scripture is clear. There is freedom in the gospel. And the Colossian heresy was trying to put those believers all under bondage again by spreading the lie that holiness is primarily the absence of something on the outside rather than holiness being the presence of something on the inside. 
They were teaching that to be accepted by God, there are all these external things that you need to change about your life that you should and should not do. Now, I need to be clear, even when we will later, does salvation lead to good works? Yes, absolutely. Faith apart from works, we learn in James, is dead, right? God's grace makes a people who are taught to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. But faith always comes first. The Colossian heresy was teaching that before you come to God, you first need to do all these other things first. Again, welcome to Colossae. Take a good look around in America. Believers, you are living in this town. Every time someone says, I need to get right with God and their solution is simply to come to church or for a Sunday or to give some money in the offering or to confess their sins to some pastor or some priest. Every time someone says you need to worship on Saturday, you need to observe the Passover, you need to be physically circumcised, you need to not eat bacon or shrimp. Right? Every time a church tells someone who has no idea who Christ is, what the gospel is, what sin is, what faith is, what Christ has done, and yet they're still allowed to become members, why? Well, they're good moral people. They've dedicated their lives to living better. They've had a good influence in our community. After all, outward morality is all that matters, right? Or perhaps more of a danger for a church like ours. Every time a genuine believer has accepted Christ as their Savior and wishes to be baptized and become a member, only to be told by a church you need to first change the way you dress, kick your habit of smoking, stop playing with cards, stop having wine with your dinner, stop voting for these types of people. We know you've trusted in Christ and that you understand sin and faith and salvation in Jesus, but you really have to change all these other things first before you can get baptized and we say that you belong to us because Christ is good, but he's not enough. There's a certain standard of morality you have to achieve before God is pleased with you and we are therefore pleased with you as well. You need to match our definition of morality first. Rather than Christ plus nothing equals salvation, the Colossian heresy was saying Christ plus human morality and this is what it looks like. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Colossae. We're living in it. All this nation over, there are pastors getting up teaching this Sunday morning, saying that Jesus is good, but you need Jesus plus a special knowledge. Jesus is good, but you need Jesus plus the special experience. Jesus is good, but you need Jesus plus the special morality. This is no small error. And so Epaphras travels over 1,200 miles, over a month and a half of walking to see Paul directly and to beg him to write a letter of warning and admonition to the Colossian church. Now you would think that with a serious problem like this, Paul would just light right into the Colossian church, calling out all those individuals by name. But Paul takes a gentle approach as usual, and he starts off by giving the aim in which he is writing to them. Why does he write this letter to the church in Colossae? This is the aim. The end of verse 2, Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. That's Paul's aim in writing this letter. He wants to give 
And he wants to ground those believers in divine grace and in divine peace. Grace is God's unmerited favor. It is his divine blessings freely given to us in Jesus. And the result of God's grace and favor in a person's life is peace. Grace and peace. They go together. That's the settledness that comes to your life when you know you have a right relationship with God. Right? When you know that you have a close, intimate fellowship with God. This heresy was trying to rip peace away from the believers and trying to rip grace away from the unbelievers. And so Paul goes to battle for grace and peace in this letter. And I want you to see here that all this grace and all this peace comes flowing to us as believers from God our Father. How? This letter will show us through our Lord Jesus Christ. Man, that's what needs to be asked of these people who think that there needs to be something else other than Christ alone. Either for your salvation or for your walk with God. They need to be asked this question. Does any of that that you're telling me that I need give you any peace? A true, unshakable settledness of soul, contentment, and joy deep in your being? You say, I need all these experiences, but are you even content? You say, I need this specialist, but are you even at peace? You say, I need to follow all these laws. Do you even have joy? You say, I need to read all these books, but do you even have a settledness and a peace in your heart? See, all of these are but broken cisterns that hold no water. All those things that they're trying to add to Christ and add to the gospel bring no peace. Christ alone brings grace and peace. Christ alone. If you want grace, believer, unbeliever, if you want peace, if you want everything you desperately, spiritually need, then come to the river of life. Come to Christ alone. And that's why Paul writes this letter. So that we who live in Colossae, who are being told each and every day, wherever we go, that Christ is not enough, that we need something more, a special knowledge or a set of rules or whatever it might be, Christ writes this letter so that we would know and experience the grace and peace that comes from God through Jesus Christ alone. Because if you have Jesus, you have all you need. As Colossians 2.10 says, the key verse of this book, you are complete in Him. Complete in Christ. Christ who is above all. This is the word of God from Colossians 1.1-2, the foundation for our future study, which I now commit to your further study and your faithful obedience. To that end, let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that we can come boldly before you this morning, before your throne, because of Jesus Christ and what he has done. We thank you that he is our great high priest who has entered into heaven 
before us who right now is an anchor for our souls beyond the veil. Father, we, we pray for ourselves. I feel the burden of Paul when he expressed his fear that the believers might be drawn away from a pure devotion to Jesus Christ just as Eve was deceived in the garden. Father, we pray that that would not be true of us in our own hearts and our own minds. Help us as a church to stand firmly on the truth that we have Jesus, and in Jesus we have all we need. That we are content, and we have peace, and indeed we have joy and delight simply in knowing Him and being used by Him and walking with Him each and every day of our lives. Father, we thank You that Jesus is not a partial gift or even a gift that comes in stages, but that the moment we trusted in Christ, we received all of Him. We are complete. Father, help us to find our delight, our joy, our purpose, our vision, our strength, our grace, and our peace in your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, who is all and in all. We ask this for your honor and for your glory in this place and at this time. In Jesus' name, amen.